Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host, the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I will be interviewing a number of amazing people and simply having a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive in. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-E-E, changehappen.co.uk. You'll be able to catch up with the previous shows on iTunes and Spotify and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 18 with the title, An Autistic Parent's Perspective of Autism. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to be joined by Laurie Morgan. I met Laurie online in a Facebook group for professional speakers. It's another networking success for COVID lockdown and online networking. Laurie describes themselves as a speaker, trainer, and author. I asked Laurie to describe their superpower, and they said they don't need one. So hello, Laurie. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joe. Did I really say I didn't need a superpower? It's incredible. I get told, uh, reminded of stuff that that I've said, and I go like, that sounds really good. Did I actually say it? It's really good to be here today. Um, it's fantastic after all the the, the, the the problems that we've had, the issues connecting, all of that stuff starting to finally sit down together with the with the coffee in one hand, the water in the other, and the microphone right in front of us. How are you today? I'm I'm good. It's uh... Yeah, I'm having a good week. So, yeah, this is even better. Yeah, as you say, finally, after much toing and froing and online diaries and trying to get this coordinated, we finally made it. So I'm really pleased that we can sit down and have our coffee together and uh, and a chat. So why do we need to understand an autistic parent's perspective of autism? Right. In April, I had a book published called Travelling by Train, The Journey of an Autistic Mother. And since it's been published, it's brought to mind something that I was already very aware of, uh, that there isn't a lot of dialogue around about autistic people as parents. I had one or two people pick up on me, like um, little conversations that happen in in Facebook threads, and and people one or two people are being confused, and they've made comments like, "Is the child autistic or is the mother autistic?" And it's a both, um, because people get confused. There's so much about about um, I'm an autism parent, I'm an autism dad, I'm an autism mum, and what that, that what what that means is that that somebody is saying that I'm the parent of an autistic child. I mean, we might jokingly call them autism mamas, and it, it indicates more of a, a type of person who's kind of hanging their identity on that of their child. And, and there's a distinct definition. There's, very much, there's a big difference between being the parent of an autistic child and being the autistic parent of a child. And there's another difference being the autistic parent of an autistic child or children. Um, so, yes, I'm an autistic parent. 
and grandparent. I have three adult children, uh, two sons who were both diagnosed and a daughter who is not. Um, and I had an awful lot of people approaching me um, through various social media channels telling me their stories and their experiences of being an autistic person and being a parent. Now, we can have a lot of these chats in safe spaces, uh, talking to each other. This is autistic conversation happening about our lives, our jobs, our children, our struggles, our joys, our, our, our traumas, and all this kind of thing. But that's within the, that's, that's a, that's sitting on the couch of friendship in a safe space with people we trust, with, with other people that we know are autistic, we know their parents, and we kind of just get it. It's We're sitting within our own community. And there does not seem to be a, an awful lot of dialogue about the autistic person as a parent. And it's everybody's right to be able to have their own children and to raise their own families, whether they're children by birth or they're children by adoption. Uh, however we acquire our children, it's a basic human right. It's actually a basic human need. And the reason why this came about so strongly is that in the training that I deliver, um, I, I deliver autism training to various professionals. I've spoken to parent groups. I've spoken to parents of, of incoming students at the university I used to work at. This is all, this is all in the realm of, of, of autism world and all, all in the role of an autistic person. And I still hear people saying that their child has been diagnosed or, that, or however long ago they were diagnosed. And I was told my child would never. And then we get a big shopping list of things that they're never going to be able to achieve. They're never going to be able to work. They're never going to be able to live independently. They're never going to form successful relationships. They're never going to be able to learn how to drive. They're never going to be da di da di da di da All of those things that, that human beings expect their children to be able to do. Now, I say in my training that sets the bar of expectation very low. If we do not expect our children to achieve this, why should we bother? So they're already disadvantaged. And it's a mistake that, that far too many professional people make, whatever realm of professionalism that they're in, is to say no. Your child is not going to achieve anything. Uh, it's it's signing them off before they've even before their lives even really begun, and it makes me so so angry. And as a parent, yes, we should be allowed to have children. They have an awful lot. The whole parenting it it, it covers all sorts of other areas as well. It's it's. It challenges autism myths that, that, that apparently we, we get told it's a myth that we lack empathy. It's a myth that we're unable to form relationships. It's a myth that we can meet other people's needs. It's a, and all this, this kind of thing. Now, in, 
if professionals are being taught negative stuff about autistic people, then they come into contact with an autistic parent, with an autistic children, with, with, a, with an autistic child or autistic children, they're going to say, well, you're not capable of raising this child. This child is the way they are because you are somehow deficient as a parent, whether that's a spoken dialogue or a written dialogue or whether it's an underlying negative belief against that individual person. And there needs to be more dialogue about autistic people as parents, because if we if we see the potential of an autistic person as a parent, there is no reason why this person cannot become a parent. If we deny them that possibility, then that puts the that puts that that parent at risk. It puts them at risk of having their children removed. It puts them at risk of having unnecessary interference from authorities, from social services. Da di da di da di da. And I have come across that a lot since my book was published. And there does need to be a wider dialogue as the autistic person as a parent. That's fascinating because I, I think I've been subjected to that uh, stereotypical view of an autistic person. The, the fact that because uh, I work a lot with recruiters, recruitment process, and there's this push on autism awareness. And the common thing that comes out is that autistic people, as you say, don't have empathy or they don't, are not able to speak in any kind of metaphors or, or vague terms. If you say, how are you feeling? That's not a good question. To, uh, that's why I've been told. That's not a good question to ask an autistic person. Or if you say to somebody, tell me about your life. That's again, a bad question for an autistic person because it needs to be very specific about what I'm trying to do. That this is how I've been taught to communicate effectively with autistic people. And what you're saying is, as I've heard of other people say is, if you meet one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. Every autistic person is different. Everyone has a different layer of need. In the same that I'm an individual, you're an individual, the world are individuals. We all have to have this person-centric view of who we are, don't we? And I'm, I found it very fascinating that, uh, because when I, I'm 56 years old, I'm nearly 56. And when I was young, we didn't have autistic people. Um, they just, we did, but we didn't call them autistic. We didn't have people with Asperger's. We had all these, we had difficult children. We had children who were unteachable. We had the, the, the bottom of the class corner where children were effectively written off. And it's only really been in the last, what, 15, 20 years where we've started to understand about different learning styles, different communication styles. And some of those children who probably in my day were written off simply had either a learning disability or, or autistic or had ADHD, had attention deficits, and they received no help. Whereas at least children today are getting their help. So is it because the older generation see autism as a young person thing, not an old person thing, which is why you probably don't get the support or understanding that you're looking for? It's a, different, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because while progress is being made, there's still a, an awful long way to go. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, uh, but we were brought up in the same kind of like era. You know, I'm, I'm 59 and 
Yeah, so I related to what you said about we didn't have autistic children in the classroom. We did, but we didn't know that that's, we didn't know they were autistic. So I didn't get diagnosed till I was 44 and it was massively life changing. I, uh, I was doing some background research um, on behalf of my youngest son who had to move schools. It's, um, I don't want to go off onto too much of a tangent with that, but um, it was after doing some research that I recognized for, for, on behalf of him that I recognized the traits in me. So, yeah, it was massively, massively life changing. But there, there, there's still an awful long way to go. And a, lo- a lot of differences have been noted for a long while because as you were talking, um, I remembered different things. And you've got to remember that this is language that was used in the in the 1960s, 1970s, because children, for instance, with other differences like dyslexia, they were recognised. They were recognised as dyslexic. But to use words that were common at the time, please hear that I've said that, um, they were seen as a little bit backward or a bit slow or, you know, somehow deficient. But thankfully... There's been a hell of a lot of progress on that. So being dyslexic now does not have the same tag attached to it as being dyslexic did 50 years ago. So maybe in another 30 or 40 years' time, and hopefully it isn't going to be that long, that autism will be seen in in another and more positive light. Because you said something that the that we, we hear an awful lot. I can hardly ever, ever talk about autism to somebody new who does not quote, if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. But it's, it's one of the most common things that gets thrown up, uh, about. And we would not say that in any other context. We would not say, if you have met one Hindu, you have met one Hindu. If you have met one black person, you have met one black person. If you have met one woman, you have met one woman. If you have met one man, you have met one man. We just don't hear it in any other context apart from autism. Why? Why is it only in the realm of autism that we hear that? And when, on the other hand, the same people will say, they will follow it up, the subtitle to, if you have met one person with autism, you have met one person with autism, the subtitle then goes into, we're all individual, we're all different. And that's usually said in that kind of special voice that we usually reserve to somebody looking at a basket of kittens. If you've met one person, you've met one autistic person, we're all individual, we're all unique in our own special way. What a cute basket of kittens. And, you know, in some contexts, and for too many contexts that happens, and, you know, when you're on the receiving end of that and it's a professional do you know that is like the garage doors slamming? Oh, by the way, autistic people don't use metaphor. So just ignore the fact that I said it's like a garage door slamming because I clearly don't know what that might that metaphor might might conjure up with anybody. 
So maybe you're not autistic enough. Then do you have that problem as well? Oh, well, you, I might not be autistic. Bit, bit autistic no, 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 no. You, no you, you a scale, a scale of it. I might only be a little bit autistic. No, no, no. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. But aren't we all a little bit autistic? Aren't we all on the spectrum somewhere? And that leads into that one, doesn't it? Actually, no. And this is something that I bring up in my – I do this Mythbuster quiz. And this Mythbuster quiz is compiled over questions that autistic people want to ask or points they want to raise. And lack of empathy is one of them. Like, just, that's the top. That's the top. Well, you can hear that they, they all pop out going that. Like, you can, you can see, almost see people popping on social media going like, tell them about the lack of empathy. Tell them about the lack of empathy. That is our number one drives us nuts. It's absolutely crazy. And the other one is it. We're autistic. We are not people with autism. And it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And we we are so passionate about this stuff. Whether whether not everybody can hop up and down in a chair and wave their arms about the way the, the way the way I do, the way the way that I am. Um, but it, this this kind of thing matters. No, um, when I bring up the, um, the, the the stuff about everybody being a little bit autistic and everybody being on the spectrum somewhere. The first time I heard that, I was delivering a workshop to 95 children's care workers. And that came up and I asked the question, so who thinks, so who thinks everybody's a little bit autistic? And this is the question I put to 95 children's care workers. Nearly every hand went up. Probably about 90 hands went up. And that, I had that feeling. I could feel my face went cold. I, I was, I could barely breathe. I just, for that moment, I was utterly speechless. I was, the, the horror that just filled me was incredible. I thought, are you really being taught this? And I just somewhere, somewhere out of goodness knows where, I heard my voice. I heard this this voice from inside me saying, keep your hands raised. So which little bit of autistic are you? If you can tell me, please keep your hand raised. Not one hand stayed raised. Because it's one of those things that people are taught and they take on board without actually questioning it. And there's only ever been one person who's argued with me in a, in a training session, and she was a she was a consultant psychiatrist. Now, now that's nothing to do with an. If you've met one consultant psychiatrist, you've met one consultant psychiatrist. Now, I've met a lot, and most of them are. Absolutely brilliant, but this particular individual wanted to argue with me. So um, sometimes we just have to draw a line under it and say, okay, fine, but until you can tell me which little bit of autistic you actually are because you haven't answered my question, 
then are we going to have to leave it there and move on? And then I move on really quickly. And that, that moving on really quickly was an art I learned when I was a taxi driver. That's another story. Seriously, this is one of my funny little anecdotes. Oh, this is like getting stuck into a Monty Python sketch without realising it. This is absolutely fantastic. I mean, shall I tell you, you about you're... how I learned to move on really quickly there? I did spend a, a, a period of time, about, about three or four years, being a taxi driver. And the reason I got to being a taxi driver was because out of an unfortunate circumstance, um, it was a, a really horribly, terribly stressful and, and tragic point in my life, and I'm actually making it sound like a joke, and it wasn't. Um, I was subject to child care proceedings, and my, uh, my two older children hadn't lived with me from before his birth. They were his half-siblings. And, and he had a, an injury, a, a non-accidental injury, and, and, and um, I couldn't prove that I hadn't done it. And he was in um, foster care. And I used to see him. Sorry, I've got a dog running around underneath. Um, he was in foster care, and I used to see him on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. So I needed a job that was during the night time or at weekends. And I got a job as a taxi driver. And I thought, social services are going to think this is really great, dead positive, all that kind of thing. But no, they said I was putting myself at risk. Now, had I got a job during the day, they would have said, she's putting career before child. So it's not like you, I couldn't win. It was, it was just completely dreadful. But I, um, I got a job as a taxi driver. And seriously, and I talk about it in my book, and it, it literally it, it saved my sanity. I did I did two really positive things in that awful time, and one was get the job as a taxi driver, and the other one was to start dancing. And um, I used to find out that I got asked I got asked out an awful lot. To start off with, I nearly every shift I did, I was getting asked out like four or five times a week. I'd get asked out on dates and. And I, I kind of it started to get a little bit annoying. I wasn't interested in relationships at the time. I wanted to focus on what really mattered, and relationships weren't one of them. Um, and I, I figured out that, that people ask this question, well, people, it was usually blokes, um, and the quite common question went along the lines of, doesn't your husband mind you doing this? Or doesn't your boyfriend mind you doing this? And I used to say, well, well, I'm sort of like, I haven't got a husband or no, I'm, I'm not in a relationship. And then I'd get asked out. And, and that's when I realized that they weren't really asking whether my husband minded or my boyfriend minded. They were really asking, are you single? Now, I was answering the question that they asked and not the question that they meant. And this is a this is a, a completely autism thing. You know, you ask me the question, you ask me if I want a cup of coffee, I'll say yes or no. If you're asking me if I want a cup of coffee because you think it means I'm invite, you're inviting me in your house for a, a fumble on the sofa to Matt Monroe songs or something, then it's not going, you know, you ask me for a coffee, you didn't say like, you know, take your clothes off, love, or anything like that. And I realised that, that that was what the question meant. So, so I learned to move on really quickly and say, like, um, well, actually, I don't have one, but you know. And then I changed the subject quick. And the 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 invitations to quiet nights in just dried up, which is 
quite a relief. So that's how I learned to move on from an awful <laughs> question. And it does work well in a professional setting. Yeah, I, I think you're right. When, when we're training, when we're standing up in front of people, it's quite easy to get sucked into a black hole if you're not careful. Yeah, so someone's going to have a question or they'll have a perspective and you get you get dragged into it. As you say, it's, it's very important to be able to have a, an escape route out of a conversation, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, it's it's being able to it's it's being able to to look at that um, that distraction over their shoulder and that, that 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 nice nice shiny ball or that lovely view or something like that, and then move on to something else. But we need to move on now. We're really short of time, so X, Y, and Z. You're welcome to speak to me afterwards. So you're also going to destroy the myth that you're not a mathematical genius. Then is that is that another? Myth that you try and bust. Yes, that's on the quiz sheet as well. We're, we're not all good at maths. It's actually really common. Uh, so some are, some are, some people are really genius with numbers, and, and some aren't. Um, I'm not great. It was one of those pain areas when I was growing up because my dad was a genius, literally. And, and he was a, he was literally a mathematical genius, and I wasn't. I'm I've got dyscalculia, which is the numerical equivalent of dyslexia, and I've got no capacity to retain numbers or information and stuff like that. And working out calculations and it, it does affect a bigger area of your life. Apparently, it affects your ability to organise yourself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, as well. It's not just the numbers, it's the other things. But but um, I'm not great with numbers. And, and when I say it's not, and it's not just me, because uh, when I stand in, in a training room or in front of an audience, I know that I'm representing the autistic community. And I say, yes, I'm an, I'm an individual, I'm very unique, but I'm not unique. Because if I, if I say I'm really dreadfully poor at something, I know I'm not going to be the only one because I know I belong to a community where there will be other people who experience the exact same kind of difficulty as well. So I feel that I can, um, I can honour the autistic community by speaking for, for by, by being a mouthpiece for us. Because I I do need to put across, um, I need to put us across in a positive light. If I if I if I stand in front of an audience and I and I seem articulate and I seem capable, that's busting a myth as soon as I walk in the room. The fact that I open my mouth and I can string a sentence together, when people have only really come into contact with a with with autistic people in the context of learning disability. And that's something else that people confuse as well. Autism is not a learning disability. And I think I think a higher proportion of us don't have learning disabilities than actually do have. I think the the, the printed statistics are about 48% of autistic people have a learning disability. But I actually challenge that because there are going to be undiagnosed people out there 
who meet the criteria for genius or average or above average, who they, they, they've never had their autism diagnosed. And they clearly don't fall into learning disabled. And uh, they won't appear in statistics any more than they'll appear in statistics of, 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 of employment figures, for instance, or school exclusion figures, anything like that. If you're not diagnosed, then you're not going to appear in statistics that look at autism. People hear these terms, they hear the word autism, autistic, they hear of Asperger's. Are these linked or separate? I mean, there are different conditions or different um, ways people exhibit autism to certain degrees or strengths. Is that is that right? Is Asperger's similar to autism? I'm glad you brought that up, actually. I really am, so thanks loads. Um, very much appreciated. I'm currently waiting to hear about the tribunal for my personal independence payment, which I got turned down for. Um, they decided that I had to go from DLA to PIP, and I had it got assessed. And like most people, you get turned down, and they hope you're going to go away and leave it, but you appeal. So I'm going through the process. And, and in my PIP interview, I had this argument with the assessor um, because she said it says here you have autism and Asperger's and I just like no, no it's the same it's the same Asperger's and autism I use interchangeably Asperger's is a form of autism um, it's not used so much now. I tend to just use autism. And even on the, the letter I got from the court, it said I got autism and Asperger's. It's, you don't have both. It's one. It's just one condition. They tend not to diagnose Asperger's now because it, it comes under the umbrella of autism spectrum disorder or autism spectrum condition. And, there's, there's, there's no difference because if you look at that, you start looking at functioning labels all over again. You say they, they used to say Asperger's is a high functioning form of autism. Asperger's is is a mild form of autism, but but they're still saying form of. It's not, you know, it's still the same thing, and it's it's confusing because. Now, one of those things that, that happens is when we're looking at functioning labels, is that oh, uh, severe autism, um, um, high or you know, high functioning, low functioning, severe, mild, all this sort of thing. Uh, to meet a, the diagnostic criteria, you go through all of the things that that are difficult in that, that you have difficulties in, all the all the areas that are problematic. So basically. You have to fit all of this negative criteria to get your diagnosis. Now, when you go and look for support, they're not interested in what you can't do. They're interested in what you can do. So to fulfill the, the diagnostic criteria, it might be, look, I, I'm, I'm absolutely unsafe to live on my own, for instance. And then, then to get support and help, and they'll say, yes, but you live on your own. 
and then they'll see that as and it's it's completely skewed. It's it's completely wrong. Is to look for support. They'll, they'll they'll dismiss you as needing support because of everything that you can do. Now that's that's when you're that's when you let's just say at, at, at my end when you when you're autistic and you don't have a learning disability or what people might call high functioning or whatever and it's it's all arguable and it's it's terrible and it, it it's offensive to autistic people. So if you're classed as severely autistic, then what happens is that they they don't actually look at the things that you're capable of achieving. And they set the bar of achievement incredibly low. So you're disadvantaged by the functioning labels that we see, and especially when it comes down to um, living your life, like being a parent, being employed, living independently or getting support, just being seen as a, as a regular human being. Mm. I, you've been autistic all your life, so you can't, know what it's like not to be autistic or not to be you but can you imagine some of the additional challenges you've had as a parent with children obviously to be a parent you have to have children but to be a parent of both autistic children and non-autistic children that you've had to cope with that maybe other parents don't i don't uh, my my daughter isn't diagnosed and she doesn't want to go for an assessment so in in theory, I don't know whether I've got a child who isn't autistic. Um, so I, I've, I've got a I've got a bit of a question mark over that one. Um, I think generally speaking, we, yeah, we kind of think that she is, but that's fine. As, but you see, I, I've never known, I've, I've never parented any other children apart from mine either. So it's a kind of tricky one. I, I do know that that with my with my eldest son, I I had hadn't got very much of an idea like what the hell am I doing here? I've got this this small baby, and and I, it, like okay, what do I do with this? It's like getting that really useful Christmas present and you look at it and you look across at the person who's given it you and they're just literally bursting with excitement. They're not literally, let's say metaphorically bursting with excitement. And they're looking at you going like, isn't this the best present you ever had? And you look down at it and go like, what am I supposed to do with this? And that was what it was like having a new baby and so I just kind of grew with him and I tuned tuned into him I knew what worked I knew this behavior meant one thing and that behavior meant something else he knew that if he started to get raggy and irritable he was probably hungry he wouldn't come and say mummy I'm hungry you'd know by his behavior that, that, that he was hungry and it, I mean, you, you learn these things over a period of time, and and it, it is kind of like in in the way he's under your feet an awful lot. Just give him something to do, and he's happy. He didn't necessarily want me to play with him. It was he just wanted giving a job to do. So you, you'd set him up with a task, get all the sticky box, stick all the boxes, the glue out, the paint out, and give him some cardboard box modelling to make. He'd be happy. 
um, or you're making bread, just wrap a tea towel around his tummy, wash his hands, stand him on a stand him on a chair, put him at the dining table with a lump of dough, show him how to do it, leave him with it. Happy as you like. And you just got to know. Um, so that was my experience of, of having this child. And he got a, we had a few issues when he started school. Um, he was one of those kids who crawled, he, he crawled around on the floor under the table. So he'd roll around on the, on the, the, the cloakroom floor, this kind of thing. And, and he did display the sort of behavior that he displayed at home. And I knew how to deal with it. But I didn't go particularly down well, particularly at school. I got called into the headmistress's office an awful lot. And I'd say, well, I've, I've always done an awful lot with him because you, when, when this happens, I do that. It's cause and effect. He does this. I do that. Everybody's happy. And, and she said to me, perhaps you've done too much with him. Yeah, but if I ignore him, he's just an absolute pest. So that that was how I related to my child. I did not have a good example. My parents were both dreadful. Um, I was uh, abused an awful lot, um, emotionally and verbally. Occasionally, occasionally physically, I was I was hit. Um, my my mum would lose a temper, and she'd just launch into me and thump me in the head and that kind of thing. You know. Um, and so I didn't really have an awful lot to follow. I just learned from my children. Um, and, and that was that was my experience of, of parenting from, from that particular angle. And now I've got different experiences over the years. And I haven't stopped being a parent. My youngest one's nearly 27 and, and um, still learning new things because his life experience changes. So, so stuff crops up when they're adult that, isn't going to crop up when they're five, for instance. Um, the things that I found difficult were things like uh, playground conversations with other parents, um, going to play groups and stuff like that, where or toddler groups where you, you're mixing and meeting other parents, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I didn't know how to have conversations, didn't know how to chat. I felt awkward. Um, sometimes I couldn't speak. Uh, I'd stammer an awful lot because I can't get my, I couldn't get my words out, which is sort of thing that generally happens when I'm feeling incredibly awkward and in a situation that's difficult for me. And I didn't really ever make lots of friends. Um, because I didn't really know how to. When we were chatting earlier, you were talking about motorways and country lanes, which I thought was, was a beautiful analogy. And as you've got older, you've you've kind of also questioned your own sense of self, your identity, uh, your gender, et cetera, et cetera. And as you've evolved your own sort of identity, you've become... Uh, less able to cope with overload, haven't you? I think that's what you were saying. You, you get too much information sometimes. I don't know about being less able. It's more aware that I'm just not tolerating it. It's not necessarily coping. It's just, I think, I think, I think as my self-awareness has grown, I'm, I'm less inclined to tolerate what I call um, country lane talking. And yes, we were we were talk, we were talking earlier about some of the some of the issues that, that I have. 
And quite often I have difficulty relating to women because I know it's a generalisation. It is very, very much a generalisation. So if any women are listening and they're being offended and they're saying, yes, but I'm not like that, well, I'm acknowledging that because... You've met woman, one woman, you've met oh, one woman. Well, yeah, yes, as you said earlier, it was different. One yeah. woman, you've met one woman. It doesn't mean to say you know them all. But now, this is a common experience that I found, and yes, I am generally generalizing an awful lot, is that, that women tend to give you far more information than you need. That they'll waffle, they'll they'll say 25 words where one will do. And it, it's hard to, to keep up. It's hard to follow. It's hard to know what are you actually asking? What information are you actually giving me? And it's sometimes like people, are, people talk a lot and communicate absolutely nothing. There's um, one female lecturer when I was at university. I, I just couldn't bear going to her lectures. I, I took literally what the course leader said in the intro before we started uni. And I didn't go to uni till I was forty-four, so I was I was already I was already theoretically grown up. But I, I can remember sitting in the street. I was going to be meeting my uh, my uh, my uh, mentor. I remember lit, sitting in a, in a public street in Sheffield out, outside the outside the library. And it was by the side of a, one of the dual carriageways that runs through the middle of Sheffield. And I just sat there in the, in the side of the street with my back against the library wall crying. And it's the prospect of going into this woman's lecture because she just talked, talked, talked. I've got no idea what she's trying to say. And that's an extreme example of something that I find really common. And it's what I call country lane conversation because it goes all over the place and it takes ages to get to where you're going. Now, that's very common in people who aren't autistic. Autistic people tend to be more motorway thinkers and motorway talkers. So you don't get the waffle. You get very direct answers. You get very direct instructions. And it's so easy to follow. Occasionally you might stop at the services because you need a bit of a break. But but generally speaking, it's a far more efficient way of communicating information. And it's a metaphor that autistic people aren't supposed to know very much about. We're going oh, to keep coming to back today. to this because yeah. because it's just yeah. poking a bit it's just poking a bit of fun at stuff, but but in a light-hearted way. I hope anybody listening is is actually getting a bit of a message there. Yeah, the autistic people. You've met one autistic person. You've met one autistic person. I've, I learned that that's that's a really crass thing to say. Yeah, but I've you're saying it more than I am. You're, 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 I, I know. I'm, I know it's a crass thing to say. Christmas cracker things, couldn't we? To put all I know. The, the Christmas cracker. Instead of a joke, is it sort of a Christmas cracker autism myths? And, and I, one of I, them could I just be that, the, couldn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, many of the autistic people who train on autism use that phrase a lot. I think it's a lot of the way to that, training. It, it is, yeah. Uh, I, I, well, I, can't, I can't speak for everybody, every autistic trainer or every trainer who teaches autism, but I often hear that from people and I hear that about people with disabilities and, and other characteristics. 
So I think I think it's a a muggle's way of describing people who are, who are you know, a muggle would assume that they're normal and everybody else isn't. You know, it, so the, you know, when you talk about people with different gender identities, different uh, abilities, disabilities, we like to box people in, don't we? We like to create this sort of like stereotypical view of somebody so that we can we can put them in a box. We can we can say, well, autistic people are like this, uh, trans people like this, disabled people like this, people who are deaf are like this. And we like to have these little boxes. It makes it much easier for, to deal with people, doesn't it? And uh, I think what we're doing with autism is doing that. We're creating these boxes so we can put people in, so we can label people and say, right, that's an autistic person. We're going to treat them like a mathematician. We're going to make – they're not going to have any empathy. They're not going to want to communicate. If you ask them a question, it's going to be very direct, um, and they're going to give you direct answers back and avoid eye contact. And that's kind of the rules. It's a bit like having a – a gremlin is that you can't feed it after after ten. You can't get it wet, and uh, you can't give it bright light. Whatever the other things did. So we, we we learn about people in these big stereotypes. And I think what we're discovering here is that we can't be stereotyping people with autism because autistic people because there is there is no typical person in the same way. There's no typical other person. Well, I think if you go if you go back through the. The, the history of the study of autism, and I, I don't know whether you've come across the book called Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. It's um, it's quite heartbreaking reading um, the earlier chapters, and it it lights don't start to come on till quite a way into the book, so it's it's really heartbreaking. But looking back at the original people who were studying autism, they weren't even trained psychologists. It's absolutely, they set themselves up as, and they studied stuff, and they they brought papers out that an awful lot of um, understanding was subsequently developed on, and they, they only looked at boys, they only studied boys. So for a very long while, and it's still the case today, it's much harder to diagnose girls or women because so much of the, the, the information that's out there is based around the study of males or typically presenting males. Um, and it's, it's very difficult. And the thing is, that if, you, if you look at it from an autistic perspective, the uh, the, the if the, the children in the study are not showing any empathy from an autistic perspective, it might be because they don't understand what they're supposed to be doing in that particular task. Um, they're too frightened to show any emotion whatsoever because one of the myths is that we don't show emotions. If you're frightened, it's difficult to show any emotion. If you're frightened, it's difficult to take on board any information. And children were being studied in laboratories in, under artificial circumstances. Now, if you're the type of person who finds those sort of conditions incredibly difficult to operate under or think inside, then you are going to present in a way that isn't, isn't normal for you. So an awful lot of these diagnostic criteria were set up based on artificial situations. Now, if, if children were, were studied at home, 
They studied in their natural environment. If they were watched while they were in the playground or at the park or in the classroom or in the home or in the supermarket or walking to the supermarket, you'd see a completely different picture. You'd see a completely different picture if you saw the way the child interacted with their family pets with their siblings, with their parents, in a in an environment that's actually the one they used to living in. And this is where a lot of this absolute rubbish starts from. And the things that we impose on people as well. So what could we do um, in the workplace or even in society to to change the cultural um, perception of, of autistic people. What, what's the, what, what can we learn? What, what, what can I learn to, from today? Well, we can be more motorway. You know, what job do you want doing? This person can do this job, so let them do the job. That is just cutting out a hell of a load of rubbish. Now, you don't. You're not employing somebody to. You know, make friends. You're not. Um, you're not employing somebody who looks like they might be a laugh on a night out. You're not employing somebody who's great to have a water cooler conversation with. You are employing person A to do job A, person B to do job B. Why do social skills matter very much? In 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 any any job where it might not necessarily be relevant. In fact, how relevant is it in an awful lot of jobs? If you're um, saying a social worker visiting a family, you've got questions to ask. Now, just ask the questions. Ask the question that you want the answer to, not the question and the person gives you the wrong answer because they didn't guess the right answer. We can learn, we can all learn to be a bit more direct. Some of that is actually part of British culture. And I've learned that by mixing and meeting with, with people from, from other cultures. Some cultures are very much more direct. No, if they think you're fat, they're going to say, man, you look fat. And, and there's nothing that, 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 and that's the way that culture operates. And that, that is, that is quite a culture that, that you can relate to from an autistic perspective because you think, yeah, you know, that person, that person needs to shed some pounds. But it's not necessarily the sort of comment that, that we, that, that British people would make. But it's, it's perfectly acceptable. Let's, let's be direct with people. Let's, if it's, no, let, let's, let's say it. There's, a, there, there's some things we, it's the whole that social interaction thing's a nightmare because some things we don't say, some things we do say. Like, I was just saying what I was thinking. Well, you know, sometimes it's not relevant. It doesn't matter. You know, all you need to know, person A needs to do job A. Nothing else particularly matters. It doesn't matter how old they are. It doesn't matter what colour they are. It doesn't matter what size they are. It doesn't matter whether they prefer if they're, if they're boys who, who, who like to sleep with boys or girls who like to sleep with girls or they like to sleep with both. Or It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many children they've got. It doesn't matter whether they're married or not. No, you need person A to do job A. You know, there is too much 
in the workplace is where you're taking on a person who fits in with company culture. And a lot of that's based on age and appearance. You know, we're all a young, dynamic team. You know, it's just, well, you need a so young, dynamic attitude. Focus on the task in hand and less about the social interactions. It's kind of the autistic view of efficiency, if you like. Yeah, yeah. What job do you want doing? Show me. Yeah. No, I, I can sometimes when I'm concentrating, that's exactly what I need. I need to head down. Let me get on with it. Tell me what you need. Let me do it. And as you say, I think there's a lot of country lane conversations where you end up over talking about something where you end up explaining it in too much detail and sometimes it's nice to say okay tell me what the, where, where are we going with this where are we going tell, tell me what you're after and let's get on with it so I, I completely relate to that um cut into the chase i think we call it cut into the chase it's, yeah it we can flower things up can't we yeah often i think how much so time you, and money yeah. we could save if we weren't having meetings about having meetings <laughs> if we knew so what have you found strengths were you know, this person, we've got a personal have family who's absolutely yeah. brilliant at this. Let them get on with it. There's too much micromanagement. Yeah. So have you found lockdown then? So yeah, presumably, like the rest of the country, you're, you're often now working from home and spending more time at home. Well, is that is that more of a challenge for you? Or do you find that uh, uh, more relaxing because you're not, dealing with people's <laughs> country lanes at the moment. Country lanes and motorways. Um, that they've been um, forced to be more isolated in a way. Um, I've had a lot of personal circumstances going on. How have I found lockdown? You've got highs in there. There are highs, there are lows. I've got a, a one, like she's 16-month-old granddaughter. Um, missed her first birthday. We missed the opportunity of seeing her in real life because of lockdown. My um, youngest son's partner had a baby during lockdown, and that was a high point. Um, I've had a few inquiries about paid work, which you know, like the freelance work, which is positive. Uh, but I've had other stuff that's had to be postponed or put on hold, which has been uh, difficult. Um, I got to a point of month, six weeks ago, where I was realising that I was getting a lot of anxiety, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I decided that I needed to do something about it, so I started garden projects. Now, I'm not one for gardening. I'm not one for housework. I, I just often find it difficult to know where to start. So with the garden, I started digging. I started chopping back a lot of stuff that had overgrown um, and started digging. And when I started digging, I saw the next job coming along. And if I clear this enough, with my birthday approaching, which is the beginning of July, um, I can make this area big enough to pitch a tent in so that that my uh, two older grandchildren can come over on my birthday and we can camp in the garden and have a barbecue and all this sort of thing. And the idea started to grow. And this is... This is how ideas, things, things develop with me. And sometimes, sometimes it is the runaway train and I end up taking on more than I can deal with. And I was borrowing next door's um, garden waste bin because theirs is paved over. 
They teach us to put garden rubbish in. And then I went around one day to see if I could borrow it. And we got this treasure chest, cardboard box treasure chest in the garden. And on the front step with this, the post-it note said, free. Like, okay, can I have that? Yeah. So, of course, I got hold of that. Well, I'm going to fill it with stuff and like chocolate money and, and various bits of shiny, sparkly, piratey-looking stuff and bury it in the garden. So that means I had to dig a big hole to bury it in the garden, which is fine because I don't have any lawn at the moment. So I can dig up as much as I like. I can, I can dig a World War One trench if I want to. It's absolutely fine. So I had this crazy idea of burying this treasure chest. And, of course, bury the treasure chest. I had to make a sort of like clues so the children could run around the house from one clue to the next till they got to X marks a spot. Now, I got a, I got a literal X marks a spot because my little grandson, who's, who's six, he likes looking at maps. And he was looking at a map one time and he was looking for something that he called X marks the spot. So I thought, well, let's have a real life X marks a spot. So I crossed two twigs over, covered it with a mat, laid these clues out. They uncovered the map, found X marks a spot, and they stood there looking at it for a moment. And Olivia said to Mickey, I think we're supposed to dig. So we got soil flying everywhere. It was just an absolute total mess. By the end of the weekend, I think I could have grown potatoes on my, on my dining room floor. There was that much soil everywhere. But they had a great time. and They have lots of fun when they come over. And I think that's, that's because, um, that's because um, I get down on their level and I, I see life through their eyes. And I think they're going to love this. And if, if that's not, you know, is that showing empathy? Looking, looking at it through their eyes, thinking they're going to love this. They're going to love the treasure chest. They're going to love the camping in the garden. And it's about designing things around what they are going to absolutely love. And they enjoy coming over so much. So that's what, that was a, that was a lockdown project. And it takes ages. It took hours to dig that hole and 30 seconds to dig the treasure chest up. But it doesn't matter. It's helping to keep me mentally well and healthy. And that, that matters. The children are having fun while I'm looking after my mental health. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Well, you've written your book. Just remind the listeners about your book again. So this book you've written, what is it about? It's called Travelling by Train, The Journey of an Autistic Mother. Um, it's by me, Laurie Morgan, and that's spelled L-A-U-R-I-E-M-O-R-G-E-N. It's published by Panama Press. It's available on Amazon and other outlets uh, through Blackwells, through Warstones, uh, directly through me. I'm guessing that you may well put my contact details somewhere on your podcast. I will do, yeah. So this, um, this book will be useful for parents who are themselves are autistic or people who want to find out more about autism. It's a general, or is it, or is it a life biography? Right. It's, it's um, a fabulous question and, and well worth asking. It's not a book. It's not a book about trains. It's not a book about autism. It's not a book about parenting. It is a personal story that, that's written from an autistic perspective. I was through most of the book. It covers a twelve-year. It covers a twelve-year period. Uh, some of the some of the the time in it 
let them are going to more detail than at others. So it it slows down in pace, it picks up in pace. Um, and it raises questions that need to be raised. Uh, did find myself in a, in circumstances that I didn't understand. And I was responding to the situation in ways that weren't expected. And that went against me. And I responded in ways that weren't expected because there's a prescription, especially when you're coming into contact with, with authorities like the social services and they're expecting, um, an invisible tick box to be ticked. And if you're not ticking the tick box, it's wrong. And I wasn't responding in ways that they would have expected, so that went against me. Now, the reason I didn't respond in ways they would have expected is because I took a lot of what they said quite literally. They didn't understand why an intelligent, articulate person didn't understand what was happening. And that's because a lot of it hadn't been specifically and explicitly laid out to me. I'll give you an example that, that happens early on in the book. Uh, I was told that my son had sustained a non-accidental injury. And the first thought that went through my head was, like he was in hospital at the time, um, oh, he, he hasn't had an accident, so he must be ill. He'll get better. I can take him home. I had no idea that non-accidental meant deliberate. And it took me a long while to realise that. And it, one of the reasons of that was because I was autistic and another one was because I'd never been in a situation like that before. Now, it would also be a confusing thing to say to somebody if English isn't their first language or if somebody might have a a mild learning disability. And that's where that's where certain certain types of people, certain cultures are actually disadvantaged. And this is why this book raises important questions. We should not make the assumption that because somebody appears to be intelligent, they appear to be articulate, or because they're doing parenting in a in a in a way that seems unusual that there's somehow something wrong with that and this is a this is goes right back to the beginning of our conversation that we were talking about this when we, we were talk, talking about parenting and, and stuff like that is that that not everybody takes the same approach you do get cultural differences in parenting and because it's different doesn't mean that it's harmful it doesn't mean that it's abusive and this is what came out in contact that I had after my book was was after my book was published, and um, from people saying that they've had these difficulties, they've had those difficulties simply because they're doing perfectly brilliant job in a way that's slightly different that falls outside that tick box type of approach. I completely get what you're saying there. When when someone says non-accidental, what they really mean is a deliberate injury. Why don't they say deliberate? But I guess the the, the, the UK culture, or the English culture, or the NHS culture at the moment is is trying to be accusatory. So if someone says someone's deliberately harmed this child, that sounds a much more accusatory than a non-accidental injury. So I can, well, why I can don't see you just why say the language. Anyway, because yeah. somebody did. I don't, 
And then uh, yeah. I, I said to him, I can remember saying at one part, well, why didn't you just say it was a deliberate? Why did you say it was a non-accidental injury? Because to me, a non-accident was like a non-event. I've said this to other people before lots of times. I say it in my book. I've said it in other podcasts. It was like a non-accident was the same to me in my head as a non-event. He was ill. He'd get better. We'd go home. I was not expecting all the rest of it. One, because it had never happened to me before. It had never happened to anybody I knew. It was completely outside of anything I'd experienced. I couldn't understand why anybody would even think that I'd want to hurt my baby. This was my third child. I had a 10-year-old. I had a 5-year-old. And I had a, a, a very small baby. Why would anybody even think that? I'd said I said this frequently. I don't know why would you even think I'd want to do that. No, I I completely get that. And I think one thing we can all take away from this is thinking about the language we use. Are we are we making language more confusing by trying to package it up? You know, in this country lane driving, as you're saying, putting too much depth into it rather than, rather than just saying it like it is. So I, I completely understand that sometimes when we're trying to get a message across, we need to be maybe clearer and that is more inclusive for all people, not just people with autism or autistic people. It's also people who maybe um, just maybe from different cultures, they want to be told straight rather than have it flowered up and, and, and lots of, lots of metaphors and descriptions there, but no, I completely get that. So, well, thank you for, your time today it's been really really interesting and, and I, I know i've been laughing and chuckling a lot in the background here as you've been talking it's been at some serious points as well i've learned a lot and uh, certainly the way i i've been talking about autistic people i'm going to change the stereotypes and make sure I, I i do some more research now and it's been really fascinating to listen to you about your life and your experiences as an autistic parent so i'm sure our listeners uh will have much to ponder and take inspiration from as well so presumably our, our, link, our listeners can get in touch with you on LinkedIn or through your website, which I think is lauriemorgan.co.uk. That's L-A-U-R-I-E-M-O-R-G-E-N.co.uk and find you on LinkedIn as well as Laurie Morgan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if, as soon as you spell my surname right, you're in there, you know, because it's yeah. quite unusual. Uh, Google will want to suggest alternative spellings, but ignore them. Stick with it yeah, and go for the right me. spelling and they'll find you. Yeah, there's one of you and if you know how to spell it. you've met Morgan, you've met one Laurie Morgan. Morgan. Yeah. There is. Yeah, <laughs> and we've learned Morgan. that today. We sure have. Well, a huge thank you to the listeners who've uh, tuned in and uh, listened to this right now. Please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends. Tell your colleagues. I have a number of exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be inspired by over the next few weeks and months. Remember, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please let me know. I'd also welcome any feedback, suggestions for future shows, how we can improve to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. My name is Joe Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to be your host for this podcast today. So catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>